Okay, do you hear me now? Yes, I do, sir. Thank you, Professor Zizek. Yeah, don't tell me, don't tell, you know, to be vulgar, if we were, I hope to be French, no? When somebody calls me <laughs> professor, my answer is, Russell must know what? What did I do to you to insult me like that? Did I rape your mother in public or what? If no, I have a name, you know. Professor well, is... We have to turn your video on. Let's get your video on, yeah, we need please, the video. Sir. Am I not on video? Am I... Ah! Start video. Fuck it. Why? In and out. Do you see my... There we go. Another we vulgarity. Go. Do you see my cunt face now? Yeah. <laughs> yes, okay. if you could just... Can, yeah, can yeah, we see yeah, more yeah. of it? Do you mind lowering your... Uh... Wait a minute. I will show like this, and uh, now you should see my face. And now I followed uh, Russell. <laughs> I also have books behind me to pretend to be an intellectual. No, I mean... Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> No, but you, Russell, you look better, more intellectual, you know. I'm just... <laughs> Everything is covered with books behind you. This is me. fake. It's just a back. It's just a backdrop. It's not real, so. <laughs> I know, I know. I like that. But as I already told you, I had friends who have books, and they, they hired a student to just go through a book and... In a totally contingent way, sign somewhere, sorry, uh, underline somewhere, write a remark so that it appears that these books are really read, you know. <laughs> you know what is my dream? This is where we are intellectuals today. You know, when we were young, we were telling, pretend that you study, you have Hegel's logic, just a cover. Inside, it's pornography. Now... In today's world, you almost have to do the opposite, you know. If you want to read Hegel's logic in peace, you have to put some cover of erotic adventures of a lady or whatever. Sorry, uh, how do we begin? I heard before, all those can you ask me, screw you, you can ask whatever you want, not a problem for me. Okay. Like, maybe, but I don't want to monopolize the debate, my God. You know, that's my only problem. Well, I'm here to debate you on the issues. I think uh, I'm not as bright as Jordan Peterson. Uh, I Nobody can measure up to Jordan Peterson. Don't I, I, haven't read one, I haven't read one-tenth of the Communist Manifesto, so I'm not equipped to... Do you to, think I uh, have? I only wrote about it. I mean, you have to make a basic choice. Like recently, a new statement or spectator published my polemics against three ongoing kind of Black Widow, Nomadland, and so on. And I'm very critical towards these movies. And uh, I haven't seen them, of course. I mean, you know, I believe that a true Stalinist intellectual has the right and duty to write about films he didn't see. You know who is my mentor here? You know what Oscar Wilde said? When you are asked to write a re review of a book, don't read that book. If you do, it may make your review partial, you know. <laughs> don't read it. <laughs> I, but now, stop joking. Maybe to tell something for our viewers that they may like. The French guy that I often quote, Pierre Bayard, B-A-Y-A-R-D, wrote, uh, among other things, a wonderful book called How to Write About Books That You Haven't Read. 
and in a wonderful way. Wait a minute, it's not a joke. Listen, I know relatively well the domain of Hegel studies, no? And guys who obviously know all of Hegel, they they are afraid to miss something like, oh, but I know Hegel says something slightly different there, it's another accent. They are usually the worst totally scholar without any idea interpretations. The best readings of Hegel are those partial one-sided. You take one aspect and you say, that's the crucial thing. I believe in productive force of par partial one-sided approach. Okay, but please, uh, uh, please, David, first, uh, screw democracy. Democracy only works if there is a leader. David, are you the leader? <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Screw democracy. Here in the United States, it looks like whatever democracy we had is in danger. Ah, there's another problem. I'm also critical towards Biden, but some of the measures, economic especially, that he tried to impose were, seriously, I had to admit it through my clenched teeth, not so bad, you know. It's serious money for ecology and so on and so on. So, yes, I agree with you. Democracy is in danger, but not only in the United States and it's an ambiguous situation because I came precisely through this opposition to Trump and so on. We got, if nothing else, in the last two years, one of the results of the pandemic is that the world, the, sorry, the word socialism is legitimized. Like if you add democratic, blah, blah, and so on, you can, you can, you can use it. You know, when you mentioned, sorry, can I just briefly develop this? When now I'm getting old fashioned Hegelian Stalinist almost, but I don't know how it is in the States. In my country also, you know, we Europeans are often arrogant towards the United States, you know. For a long time, I thought uh, you are bad, but Canada, Canada is like all the, be the best from United States combined with the best from Europe. Wait a minute, when I read now what they were doing in Canada, and I knew it already for years, I have some friends there, uh, with uh, what they were doing with those uh, indigenous children. I mean, it's absolute nightmare. It's absolute nightmare. So, uh, and we Europeans also, you know, like vaccination. Some journalists in Slovenia, looked at the government office, which who, the duty of which is to promote vaccination and to organize it and so on. And to around 50 people who work there. And he discovered that much less than half of them are vaccinated. <laughs> Even those supposed to organize it are not doing. No, what I want to say is that it's a beautiful example. I like examples of where you link a very concrete problem, like do we have the right to oppose vaccination and so on, with a very abstract problem, like, you know, some radical liberals on the left and on the right claim that to enforce vaccination is uh, 
like non-democratic uh, against your human rights and so on and so on. But I think that here we should introduce Hegel's distinction, I will immediately explain it, between abstract and concrete freedom. For example, I think that concrete freedom, not in any mystical Hegelian sense, like freedom which means that actually you can act as a free being, is only possible against the background of accepting certain rules. For example, I want to be free to publicly say what I mean to debate with friends. For this, we all need to accept the rules of language. Okay, we can try to change these rules, but not in the way political correctness did it. But like, you know, because there is an ideology in language, but rules are literally the base of freedom. Every freedom is freedom to move freely within a certain regulated space. Like, I want to have the freedom to walk around the city. Yes, but I must suppose that people whom I will meet will be mostly decent people. They will be punished, in, punished if they attack me and so on and so on. And in the same way, I think in my last uh, published somewhere on the web, I forgot where text, I took the example of this resistance to vaccination. I think this is an abstract freedom, because if you are not a paranoiac and claims that all the scientists are part of a plot who are lying, then, of course, if you have to get vaccinated, in some abstract sense, of course, if you are not free to choose, this is limitation of your freedom. You have to do it. But isn't it that today, as far as we know from science and so on, you can actually be free. I can go out, talk with friends and so on, only, in the, only if I am vaccinated. So this is a nice example of unfreedom, of a formal unfreedom. You have to be vaccinated, which enables my actual freedom to uh, communicate with others and so on and so on. That's why I quoted that wonderful uh, saying about freedom and enlightenment by Immanuel Kant, who says the message of enlightened freedom is not don't obey, do whatever you want. No, it is do publicly whatever you want, but when there is a social agreement about basic rules, you have to obey. So think freely, but obey. And I think this is the lesson that we need to take today. It sounds a harsh lesson, but just think if this global warming will go on, will we not need even harsher limitations and so on? So I think again that what really matters is concrete freedom, freedom which means under what conditions, rules, regulations, can I exercise my freedom of speech and so on and so on. You must have media, you must have a public space and so on and so on. So I, I think that that's the problem with, let's call it abstract liberalism. You know which example I like to use here? Here I'm a little bit, I'm not anti-American, it's still my favorite country, just not all of the United States. You know, wouldn't it be nice to imagine United States in Latin America, now this will be ugly towards all those in Trump land, like the combination of two Chile, 
You know, Chile is like a worm on the west side of Latin America. So let's say we have the west coast and imagine another Chile on the east coast and screw all that Trump land in the middle. <laughs> that would have been my ideal United States. You know what I mean? No? So again, uh, you know what we have to be aware of? The same goes for our social space. Democracy, including free dialogue and so on, only works if all sides accept certain basic rules. These rules can be limiting. I'm the first one to say that till 10 years ago, maybe even a little bit less, the basic rules were determined by this bipolarity, you no know, Republicans, Democrats. But that's why it worked. But what's happening today when we get Trump and the liberal establishment I don't think there is any reconciliation possible here. Somebody will have to win. You are, and we are also quickly catching up. Uh, we in Europe, we are already in a, some kind of a ideological civil war. That if you speak with our opponents, there is simply no shared space where we can even reasonably argue, you know. We are, that's why I think we are in a dangerous situation. Okay, but I talked too much, I'm sorry. We, we are, it does feel like we're in a dangerous situation. I'm gonna ask you one question, then I'm gonna ask <clears throat> Professor Ann Lee to ask you a question, and then Professor Hussein, and then Professor Burgess. Uh, but I like the main story, Hussein. Is he an Arab terrorist who escaped here and was Ahmed, but then he quickly changed from Ahmed, Ahmed into Adrian to cover up his... <laughs> sorry, sorry. I cannot... That's, you see, now you, I will not... What happened? Now no. you've outed us, uh, yeah. you know, as a, as a cell, and, uh, you know, my cover is gone. This is, you know, this is really a disaster. You've got to fold up the operation now. Exactly. <laughs> How are you doing? Is your uncle now some minister in, in Kabul of the new Talib government or whatever? <laughs> no, we should talk also about Afghanistan because I am so shocked by the attitude, I don't know if it's with you in the States, but in Europe, of leftist liberals, you know, they, some of them, even more or less openly, like my good friend Varoufakis, were nonetheless tempted to celebrate the fall of Kabul as big defeat of global imperialism, neocolonialism, and so on and so on. But it may shock you, but as a leftist, I'm saying it's not as simple as that. It's not only empirically that the, 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 the scandalous way the United States uh, withdrew, but I think that even in principle, you know, United States intervened there. Yes, they screwed it up. After 20 years and spending $1 trillion, Taliban is stronger than ever there. But precisely for this reason, you occupied, you ruined half of the country on the other side. We should be frank as leftists here, true leftists. Things that are happening there, women's liberation, uh, uh, sorry, women's liberation, it's a whole movement there. Some, even some type of civil society and so on and so on. Let's face it, this was an 
collateral effect, but nonetheless an effect of the American intervention there. And we should not be ashamed to say this, to simply withdraw. There were other options, like my Brazilian friend, Safatle Vladimir, with whom I had the debate, he said, what if there were other options, like what if United States were try to try to get some moderate Muslim countries, maybe Egyptians, Morocco, and so on, to send their soldiers there, you know, so that you don't have this clear opposition, United States versus Taliban and so on. But I think uh, the other thing is that bothered me is that typical reaction of the West was now, where does the, sorry, of the liberal left in the West, where do they feel good? When you have victims and you have to save victims, you know. But okay, victims are fighting. Why didn't they tell to those who are now victims, fight. No, no leftist would have said that. It was an imperialist war, whatever. And I find horrible this liberal left stance of whenever there are victims, we should help them. What about a positive project? Now you will say these projects are not possible. They are possible. Later we can go into it to offer people not simply the expansion of Western values, but nonetheless, a different form of Western values. I talk too much, you should kill me, now you go. You okay, let me ask you one, 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 I'll ask you one question and then we'll go to Professor Ann Lee. The, the creeping fascism here in the United States, I wonder if it's creeping. I wonder if it's already here. From your observation, is this country, is America equipped to combat fascism? The people, no, are we, are we equipped? Yeah. Are we, I will say something that nobody will like, probably. Often, I think, uh, the liberal left uses the term fascism in an all too easy way. You have something you don't like, oh, then it must be fascism, you know. We neglect, nonetheless, I'm not saying that Trump was much better, but his logic was different. First, I don't think, in spite of all rumors, that Trump really wanted to make a coup d'etat. A typical populist, he, at the same time, dismisses representative democracy, party politics as corrupted, uh, partial, controlled by elites, but he's very careful not to step out of its frame into a direct dictatorship. And that's what maybe makes Trump even more dangerous. Trump doesn't want to step out of liberalism, and once when I spoke about Julian Assange and somebody asked me, can you condense Assange's achievement into one sentence? I said it's simply that the most dangerous unfreedom is the unfreedom that you experience as freedom. You are not even fully aware how controlled, manipulated you are. That was also my defense when Assange was attacked uh, for uh, uh, um, accepting the help of uh, Putin and so on and so on. My argument is, yes, Putin is to be criticized, China and so on. 
But their people don't have any illusion. You know, you are controlled, regulated. The horrible thing about United States, the most dangerous, is that not only in spite of Trump, you feel free, ordinary people, all those people, but but you even in some sense accept that against some abstract state regulation, big corporation and so on, that Trump effectively stands for freedom of ordinary people and so on and so on. So my first, I, it's, if it is fascism, whatever, it's not the old type of fascism with this right. disciplinary military rule. And no, Trump thrives in this media corruption, manipulations and so on and so on. Second thing, as I always repeat, we should never forget that sorry to use this blah blah term misused that trump is a symptom of what went on with liberal democratic consensus in the united states so to really get rid of trump one must ask what was not radical strong enough and so on in this liberal democratic consensus why this consensus didn't succeed in mobilizing people more because you know what made me sad in afghanistan this how their armed forces simply disintegrated and so on and so on that's the strength overall in the world of this new right-wing populism and uh, it's not enough just to attack them as proto-fascists we must ask ourselves what was wrong with the hegemonic liberal democratic model that's the problem of europe today even more than united states in europe we all hate urban uh, polish government and so on and so on we are not asking the question what we the enlightened brussels bureaucracy and so on what we were doing wrong and i think that quite naively that I don't have any illusions about Bernie Sanders and so on. But uh, this uh, leftist mass movement is a sign of hope. Let's see what will happen. But I think still that uh, that the only thing that we should, okay, we should learn the lesson of Trump. You remember when Trump was during his first electoral campaign, when he was attacking opponents, uh, many moderate Republicans tell him, no, you are too exclusive, you should open toward the middle. He did exactly the opposite and he won. And the so-called democratic left shouldn't be afraid to do the same. They are, this is maybe the Obama mistake, this fear which was already Bill Clinton's fear, you know. My God, are we losing uh, this uh, middle uh, middle class, moderate, uh, and so on? No, the paradox, Trump taught us this, is that the large unity which mobilizes people requires first a strong act of division. Not we cover all, but sorry, we are not that. Clear division God. defines who we are. It's leadership. Somebody, yeah. we're all looking for somebody to march in one direction. And even if it's the wrong direction, most of us will follow because we crave leadership. So that's why yeah, Trump. You know what I will tell you here? Now, another horrible thing for liberals. 
I'm, I have nothing against strong leaders. There are two types of leaders. There are, I will define them exactly, authoritarian leaders who, whose motto is, I know better than you what is good for yourself, you know. They know it. But if you take more authentic leaders, okay, let's take one who was, for my notions, even too soft, uh, who uh, should have been a little bit more radical, but everybody at least officially loves him, Nelson Mandela. Uh, authentic leader is just his message is, and Obama later, when he was elected, abused this message. His message is, yes, not we can. Yes, you can. An authentic leader awakens you. He doesn't tell you what to do, but he gives you the courage. You can do it. Fight for your freedom. Because, you know, in our everyday life, in this liberal, everyday hedonism, we are not really free. We have to be somehow called to freedom, and we need an authentic leader. I think also because, you, you know, leader which doesn't tell you in detail what you have to do, but a leader who solicits you. Here, although I'm very critical of Mao Zedong, at the beginning of Cultural Revolution, when he said to young people, you have the right to rebel, something like this is needed today. We need leaders who will mobilize people, not only for the pandemic, but for ecology. That's why I, to provoke people, like to use the term communism to provoke them. But my message is very simple. Listen, back to Chile. What I learned now is that there is a terrifying drought in the south of Chile. Agriculture almost ruined and so on. But it's not there, uh, the result of what they did. It's way out in the, in the uh, Pacific Ocean. There is a kind of a condensed bubble of hot air being there already for two, three years. And this bubble is, of course, the result of global perturbation of nature and so on. It's the same when you had this terrifying, it was a horror for me. You remember in Vancouver, Seattle, in that area, almost 50 degrees Celsius when a month ago, something like that. I was horrified because I love Vancouver. Yes. <laughs> but what I want to say is that it's stupid to say you have to take care of that. No, it's a global perturbance of natural circulation, which by total contingency produced an effect there. And it wasn't even only there. The true horror is that, you know, a city uh, in northern Siberia, which has the official title of being the coldest city on earth. Well, this summer it was 33, 34 degrees Celsius. So isn't it clear that we can, I'm not saying abolish the market, privatize everything. No, I'm not crazy. This brings new corruption and so on. I'm saying some kind of global, not just in a state, social coordination is needed. Look, because of uh, perturbances in weather, it's quite a realist prospect that in a couple of years, we will have to move millions of people. There are regions of Earth, like the wealthiest, like Emirates and so on, 
where now you have regular temperatures in summer over about 55 degrees. Even the Arabs allegedly used to live there cannot do it. People will have to be moved. This happened in the past. It was resolved through war. Now we cannot afford it and so on. By communism to provoke people, I just mean more global coordination. Yes, use the market where it's productive and so on. But some forms of global coordination will be needed. David, is, is it okay if I ask a, a sure. jump in and ask a quick question about that? Because I've, I've heard you yeah. say that uh, before, Slavoid. I've always been curious, you know, because you talk about you know, communism and, you know, talk about global coordination for sort of yeah, yeah. society-wide planning to deal yeah. with problems, but you also say, uh, well, of course, you know, can't abolish the market. And and I, I guess what I'm curious about that is whether, you know, you think that to, to actually have communism in your sense, we would still need some sort of structural economic changes, maybe something like what people sometimes think of as market socialism, or whether you just think that's a separate issue? No, it's not. But here I am. Now, I will say something for which if you don't have other reasons, you will now, uh, you will now abolish me. You know? Okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to abolish you for I, the fact I that I forgot the guy's that. name, but some Slovene, very leftist politician, uh, told me that he's now reading, didn't some follower of Hayek, yes, Hayek, that one, one of his followers wrote a book called uh, Left Hayekianism, something like that. The idea being that uh, this the centralization, the way Marx imagined it, through some transparent, uh, through some uh, head of public, public authority, which in a totally transparent way uh, uh, regulates social production, that this not only that it's in a simple sense non-efficient, but it opens a space for incredible additional corruption and so on. So for me, market simply means, but it never means simply that, of course, that there is a certain unpredictability, non-transparency of social life. But I think that market will have to be nonetheless uh, what the Chinese are trying to do, although I'm extremely critical of them. There has to be a public authority which not controls the market in this violent sense of this commodity should cause that and so on, but to think very well, we can need this, we can leave this domain to market, we, can, we should control it, prevent uh, monopolies and so on and so on. Because the paradox of the market, of the free market, is that Today, without strong state intervention, market would already have been self-abolished you know, by big companies and so on and so on. Not all the market, but some parts. So I don't, I think that uh, what, because of my living in socialist past, I am, uh, what I don't want to engage in is to oppose market with traditional state centralization. So China, in some ways, like in some ways, China, in a really weird way, is what a lot of Western socialists have always advocated, which is that you have like a bunch of state planning at the high levels of the economy, 
kind of the commanded heights and then you you have a lot of market interactions a lot of other places it's just a very unequal and very politically undemocratic version of that as we speak she is addressing the same problems we're facing here in the united states the concentration who who is who is the lady no, 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 G, I think you said. G. Not she, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, the, sorry. The, the yeah. leader of China yeah, is yeah. addressing right now the same problems that America is trying to address, the concentration of wealth, income inequality. And I will, I think, by taking over the commanding heights of capitalism or whatever China yeah. is, it's, <laughs> I think it'll succeed. You think I'm, you know why I'm skeptical for at micro level, personal experiences, no? Uh, you remember that the hero who was for me a kind of the closest you can get to Chinese songs, that guy who was one of the first who identified COVID and then he was dying, no? He died, he died. almost in front of the camera. And among his last words were something like, I don't remember the exact words, but something like those in power should get the feedback, should listen to the people. So for me, it's not just a multi-party and so on. It's a kind of a authentic feedback. And I don't think you get this in China. Uh, I have another proof. You know that uh, two, around two years ago, I was for a couple of months prohibited there. My books disappeared, translations from books. Why? Because the most tragic thing in China now is the fate of some young students who were forced to read Mao in this new Xi orientation. And then they took it too seriously. They said, okay, Mao workers' interests. And then they discovered that in the suburbs of Beijing, there are a couple of... Uh, 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 chemical factories, totally non-protective, workers dropping from from uh, uh, pollution and so on, dropping dead, and they tried to organize them. Oh, oh, oh. They just disappeared. And the beautiful irony is that one who disappeared had a mother who inquired into why did my son disappear. It's like a bad joke, you know what happened? She disappeared the next day. You know, <laughs> and this is the problem with China. Yes, they try to regulate ecology and uh, uh, all that stuff, but it is, look, let's take the pandemic. Yes, they are doing it now the harsh way, but with a little bit more openness and backward information, maybe many specialists, they would have been able to prevent pandemic at the beginning. They lost crucial month or two months at the beginning. If they were to act then, if they were to listen to those scientists, probably it would have remained a local event there. So no, I don't, yes, I find sympathetic what you mentioned, but the problem is this uh, interaction with people. Yes, we need strong power and so on, but there has to be strong interaction with people. You have to have public space. And if anything in China now, the public space is narrowing, disappearing. Professor Ann Lee, you have a question? 
I'm glad to hear you so that at least it will not be only men talking. <laughs> <At least laughs> yeah, please. Well, no, following up on that, it, uh, you know, in, in China, one of the, the issues is uh, uh, people aren't quite so concerned about achieving status and stuff. And, and I recall that you, you referred to liberals as uh, communists with diplomas. And and in some ways, no, Orban said this. Sorry, Orban oh, said this. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. I don't mean to misquote you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but th- that that seems to be the big problem. Is uh, status is that uh, uh, you know a lot of the what normally would be uh, I- important institutions have now become more more corrupted or more uh, rigid. Yeah. yeah. Now uh, I am. Uh, I am. Let me be clear. I am for a certain degree of rigidity, which can simply means that you have a certain firm authority, which is not simply at the disposal of a contingent market or whatever forces, but not that kind of rigidity. Look, isn't this maybe you? If you know the situation from the first, can can correct me here. Isn't it so sad that uh, now students are obliged there to read Mao, but with a silent understanding, don't take it seriously. You know, just read it as a symbolic gesture. Mao is now, and I I have no illusions about Mao. Many things genuinely uh, horrified me in what Mao did. But uh, nonetheless, I am afraid of this functioning of ideology where the supreme authority is really not important. And this reminds me of my youth, you know, I'll put it like this, the general problem with communist countries, I lived in one, it's not that the authorities want to impose some brutal communist ideology, no, it's that like in my country, ex-Yugoslavia, You know, I had a couple of friends who were sincerely orthodox Marxists, sincerely. They lost their job because the authorities were well aware that if you take Marxism too seriously, you will sooner or later discover that, my God, what it has here is not, in any meaningful sense, a democratic socialist Marxist regime. So that's so horrible for me about all these countries. Uh, communist countries that the ruling ideology always combined a strong measure of cynicism, distance, and so on and so on. It's a beautiful paradox of a ruling ideology which only was able to function if it was not taken seriously by its subject. Yeah. And I, I knew examples, I knew examples like this, you know. So for me, again, the problem with China is not uh, this uh, multi-party necessarily and so on, but the problem is the feedback, a genuine feedback from the people. And this is what, what do you think? Is my perception wrong? I'm not sure. You obviously know more. No, I, <laughs> I, I hardly. But uh, I think it's just a question in, in China of scale that it is so large that it, it allows these kinds of regional uh, 
you know, resistance or fractions. And, and it's just the fact that it is, it's very large and unwieldy. It's just a yes, matter of I size. I totally agree with you. You know, uh, do you know Van Kui, the Chinese, one of the leftist philosophers? I hope I will not compromise him by saying that, you know, he told me that he met a guy who was friendly with Deng Xiaoping's daughter. You know, when Deng Xiaoping was dying, he was just whispering and only his daughter was only able to understand. And he said that when Deng Xiaoping was dying, all those his DS guys came to him, uh, celebrating him, and they often asked him the question, what do you think was your greatest political act? Everybody thought he will say it's opening China to market economy. And he said, no, to resist at that point the temptation to go all the way to multi-party democracy. Now, people usually say this was authoritarian cynicism, but as you said, I take this seriously, you know. What if, because of all these regional differences and so on, China would would maybe even fall apart, would not have functioned the way it is. I don't trust liberals when they say, oh, they did an economic miracle, but with full democracy, they would make even a greater miracle. I'm not so sure. Maybe not. So I'm not talking necessarily about no central authority and so on. I'm just talking about a greater degree of feedback. Great. Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh, the, oh, wow. our, our Taliban friend. Perfect. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I want so to reaffirm any stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like stereotypes. stereotypes. Yeah, I know. That's the problem. Yes, that's right. I know you love them. So, you know. Um, but actually, you know, it does relate to this question of uh, aspects of character and presumptions about them. There's so many interesting points to bring up. I kind of wanted to come back to that question of fascism, and you were. Yes. suggesting that we can't just, uh, you know, stereotypically condemn everything that the left wants to oppose by labeling it fascism. And you raised the issue of um, right-wing populism. So it seems like maybe you would suggest that this era where we're seeing the resurgence of different movements of right-wing populism yeah. globally around the world can't necessarily be captured by just talking about it as fascism. And I read an interesting article by Paul Mason, the uh, English I know friend. my British friend. Yes, 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 and and so and because you're you know interested in the psychoanalytic dimensions as well, mm -hmm. he had a kind of interesting uh, talk about Eric Fromm's ideas, and he was trying to revive them to interpret the contemporary moment a little bit better. And one formulation he came up with was a rejoinder to. Uh, Arendt's response uh, to the suggestion that um, fascism was something endemic to the German character. And she said, no, it was the disintegration of German character. And so what Paul Mason was suggesting is that at this moment, what we're witnessing is the disintegration of neoliberal character. Yeah. And it's... I signed it with, as they did it when they wanted to congratulate Saddam, you know, a person who always won was that he draw a portrait of Saddam with his blood instead of pension. So with my blood, I'm ready to write that what you said just now is absolutely so important. Yes, a certain hegemonic model is disintegrating. And that's why, that's what I didn't like, you remember, in the inauguration of 
uh, of Biden, which was as if, okay, this nightmare will be over, let's return to the situation before Trump ruined it. I don't think it's possible, but I'm sorry I interrupt you, please. Oh, no, that's, I was, no, no, that's exactly right. I was interested in your response to whether that's an accurate analysis. And it, it led uh, Paul Mason in this essay to suggest a few things that we need to do in trying to confront the contemporary right wing populism, because it's really the failure of neoliberalism to provide yeah, any yeah, answers. Yes. So but some let of the me things tell you something yes, yeah, which may interest you, uh, interest you here. Uh, I was always harsh against Hannah Arendt, but mm. now I begin to uh, appreciate her. You know, speaking about authority and so on, I recently read something that she wrote. I find it very important apropos authority. She wrote already way back in the early 60s, I think that today's, today, because of the social processes, influence of peers, and so on, family no longer has an authority. Parents are really rather impotent, and so on. But then she says something ingredients. She says, but this doesn't give the right to your father, mother, to tell you when you are perplexed what's going on, Listen, we are also victims of social processes. We cannot help you. It's all shit. We don't control anything. No, heroically, even if this is true, you must act with authority. Even your authority is not justified. This is not fascism. This is the only way to be, this is the only way to be a good parent. Another thing which may interest you even more, the guy whom I already mentioned, Pierre Bayard, wrote now a book about the importance of tales, narrative stories, which never happened, how, the pos- how they can play a very positive role. And you know what's his main example? I love it. Uh, Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem. Mm. Because some... He, uh, Pierre Bayard, says something very interesting. He says, on the one hand, this idea of banality of evil, bureaucrats who do evil, it's a very pertinent, important idea. It tells something. But he used the wrong example. And he demonstrates by documents and so on that, sorry, whatever you think about Eichmann, he was a fanatical, well-conscious, brutal anti-Semite. He was not the banality of evil. And the irony is that although she used a wrong example, she nonetheless proposed a very important, correct notion. And then Bayar uses two other examples. You remember, it's one of American urban, not even urban, only legends. Orson Welles' staging of War of the Worlds as the radio show. The myth is at least 10,000 of people got into a panic, roads were packed, and so on and so on. A guy then went to check hospital police records and so on. No, mostly 10, 15 people did it. He went through police records and so on. There was no, there were no mass movement, no higher number, nothing in police records. So again, I think that the result was a right one, as we see today, even more than that point. This 
uh, conspiracy theories shows but there is this painful paradox that at the beginning to propose a correct notion which will become correct only in the long term you have to use a wrong example and sorry i will immediately end up with the third example you know who was kitty something i forgot a lady who was stabbed to death in Kitty front Genevieve. of her. Sorry? Kitty Genevieve. It's a Genevieve. Kitty but, uh, Genevieve. Now I, I checked. That's a myth uh, too. You know, it's a myth. Yes, there were no 38 people who saw it. Only three people saw it and all of them did try to reach police, but none did try to call police. But nonetheless, it's a correct example, which was later triumphantly confirmed by empirical tests. How? If you witness a guy beating somebody else, if you are alone, you will probably call police. If there are others with you, you will oscillate much more. Like, why aren't others calling and so on? But you see this wonderful paradox, you know. And also, as an old stylist, I'm saying this, you know, people... Forget this, uh, uh, that uh, Hannah Arendt is much more precise. She never simply equates fascism and uh, Nazism and Stalinism. She's very specific. <laughs> yes, that in the strict sense, she says Stalinism was totalitarian. Just I think she puts it from 34, 35 to late 40s. I don't know. She's much more precise here because this is what always fascinated me but to go back to what you said yes <coughs> it's what i would have said this in lacanian terms very brutally disintegration of the big other of the public authority and i think that we should openly say public authority not in some mystical sense of i don't know higher authority but in the sense of we need some common space of shared values and so on we can debate this but within this space and so on what we are getting now is simply uh, uh, in conspiracy theories and others that it's really some kind of retribalization and so on no and we shouldn't be afraid here to call for i'm using a horrible term public discipline as a condition of our actual freedom. I think that there is no contradiction in Trump being this ruthless liberal conspiracy theorist, you think whatever you want, and the authoritarian side of Trump, which was already, which was there, of course. Yeah, Speaking that's interesting. Just, uh, you know, just as a follow-up to that, I'm wondering then, since this gets back to the beginning of the conversation in some ways about the rule-based requirements for actual freedom versus sort of theoretical freedom. And yeah. so I'm wondering if in terms of vaccination policy, for example, you know, how you would imagine applying exactly that insight that you just had about, um, you know, how you create a sense of public uh, discipline that is not going to be so frail as to be undermined by you know, that sense of it being imposed and contravening people's theoretical freedom, you know? Yeah, but now I don't have a concrete answer, but my answer is precisely the one provided by you in how we react to pandemic, 
here we see the actual consequences of what you just called this disintegration of the public space and so on and so on. So that's how I think we should talk with people. Sorry if this sounds uh, patronizing, but to ordinary people. You know, when we talk about public space, big other, blah, blah, we are not talking about abstract things, my God. We are talking about things which concern their daily lives. With us in Slovenia, as I already said, I'm absolutely not anti-American here, because in Slovenia we are now getting even much worse. It, uh, also, if you have it also in the States, it's a kind of a almost globalized indifference, you know, like now Slovenia and it's as your beloved president, ex-Trump would have put it, we are a shithole of a country with just two million people. But now we are again at over a thousand uh, new infections per day. But people are somehow tired. They are not ready to take it seriously. On the street, you see almost nobody with a mask. Sometimes. In some strange way, people are, people are tired of it all. And I understand people because, as I always repeat, what is threatened? What is under threat today? But I don't think it's a big corporate threat. Is uh, the limitation, gradual disappearance of our common sense daily way of life. You know, you go out, talk with others and so on, communicate and so on. And I don't think this is just a big capitalist corporate threat. I think that the tragedy is this one, if I may just finish. On the one hand, we have, you know, the Pegasus uh, software program and so on. So people are becoming aware of how, to an incredible level, our lives are controlled. Everything is written and so on, and programs which control us are getting more and more precise and individualized. It's no longer that just some generalities and so on. But I think people who feel this, in some sense, broadly applied this to, to the pandemic. You know, this general fear against big co corporations and so on and so on, all that stuff. So when people tell me, do you agree about all those, with all those programs that, for example, follow where you move? I said, I have no problem with that. This is a very limited control. I worry much more about how I already am controlled with, with other programs, which, I don't know, like simple thing. Are you aware? I know from my wife who buys Kindle on Kindle books. Are you aware that when you read a Kindle book, not only Amazon gets to know what you are reading, but also in what rhythm are you reading, on which pages you are, and so on. I mean, we are with incredible capacity of today's mega computers. It is possible to get two things. First, a police state, which is really effective, which in pre-digital times, it wasn't possible. But at the same time, which doesn't, don't, the police state, it doesn't openly encroach or limit your freedom superficially. So obviously, we have to limit, no limit our freedom, we have to rethink our freedom. I think we lived for too long a time under this impression that, you know, freedom means freedom of choice. No, I think too much of a choice can paradoxically even 
limit the true choice. The true freedom is for me the freedom to change the terms of the choice, you know, like I don't want just uh, Coke and Pepsi. Uh, there are subdivisions like some shitty organic Coke or whatever and so on and so on. We have to redefine our freedom. What do we mean in everyday life, not as an at an abstract theoretical level? Right. The reason Russell, you didn't yet attack me. Russell, all the others, our Taliban friend, the Ben Burgess, and Russell, you didn't yet attack me. The uh, reason Apple is so successful is yeah. it, has, it offers fewer choices. This is what you're going to get. Take it or leave it. Professor Ben Burgess. Uh, yeah, I was actually curious about maybe going back to uh, the beginning of the conversation about fascism, although I did want to say while you're talking about China earlier, I was thinking about uh, a few years ago, I taught a uh, summer class at uh, Zhilin University in China. And, uh, and when people said, you know, they had to take Marxism classes, you know, it's like a gen ed requirement essentially there. Uh, you know, I was super curious about this. And I remember one student telling me, this may be an exaggeration or one particular teacher or something, but they said that they, uh, that they were told that you didn't actually need to read primary sources in Marxism class because the, the Chinese Communist Party had synthesized it all so well. It was no longer, it was now redundant to have to read the... Uh, but, uh, sorry to uh, interrupt you, then you can go on. You know what would be my point here? The yeah. subtle message of you don't have to read is even, maybe it's better for you not to read it. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, I also actually talked to a uh, Marxism professor at Jilin, and uh, and it was a really strange conversation. Like they said, like the things they were trying to, or I guess this was one of the students, but it was part of the same conversation, uh, that the, the big things they got out of the Marxism class were about individual responsibility and everybody's efforts to build up the Chinese nation. I thought, man, so those two things that... Karl Marx constantly wrote about individual responsibility and Chinese nationalism. You know, that's what you're learning in your, uh, in your Marxism class. No, but, but I, this is, again, but this is, yes, I agree with you. This is horrible what you were told because you see today with regard to ecology, hmm. Etienne Balibar, I think, made the remark how this, and you know it, this line of thought of mine, I think, how this focus on individual responsibility is one of the ways of the hegemonic ideology and capitalism to reproduce themselves as function smoothly. Like, I often was witness to this debate. I criticize some big companies, and then they tell me, yeah, it's easy to criticize, but did you do your individual duty? Did you put all kinds of coke in one bag, all, all newspapers in another, and so on and so on? So then, all of a sudden, in in, instead of radical, critical, thinking you are, and all left liberals love this, you are this infinite, you know, left liberals enjoy feeling guilty and probing deep into their guilt. Like, oh my God, I use that expression. Was I maybe sexist or racist, you know? And it's the same with this. Did you do enough? No, we have to become aware of proper proportions here, how one big, corporation uh, pollutes the environment more, more than a million people in all their lives and so on and so on. The pro we should precisely not 
put things here at the level of individual responsibility. And it's strange when you said, Ben, that they got this as a lesson, because if there is a point in Marx, it is that maybe in an even too simple way, that in some sense, even capitalists for their exploitation are not individually responsible. You know? Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's so when you say that common book, do you work for common book? Marx would have exploded at this idea of opposing uh, individual responsibility working for common good. Well, the elementary Marxist move here is, and it's still very useful today, it's okay, but define common good. Are there any ideological biases in the common good? You know, like how exactly do you define? common good. Their ideology is there. That's why I'm, you know, which thing I most like from when I was young. I spoke with a guy, he visited Ljubljana, who was an American congressman, a left Democrat. And then this was about Watergate era, whatever. I, as a total idiot, raised the question of corruption and so on. And he said, you know that there are very honest Republicans who are not personally corrupted, but do much less good than some corrupted Democrats. <laughs> so I'm not saying we should ignore corruption, absolutely not. But what I'm saying is that we shouldn't moralize in this false way politics. Yeah, and, and I, mean, I mean, this is something that Michael Brooks always used to point out, you know, talking about things like the prosecution of Lula in Brazil, but the thing about anti-corruption politics is that it's kind of apolitical. It's, uh, you know, you could use it to, to advance anything because there's, there's no real ideology there. And this goes back to the point about the Chinese, you know, pseudo-Marxism classes, because it's just about individual moral virtue. Um, yeah. So, uh, I did. I did want to go back real quickly just to to where we we started because I'd, I'd be curious about your your take on this. I think that there is like an interesting tension in a lot of American progressive views about Trump and Trumpism because on the one hand, uh, there's a correct critique. I think we all agree with that. Like Trump's response to the pandemic was criminally negligent, and you know, and, and there, there mm. should have been. Uh, Lots of, you know, like a much more thorough, you know, lockdown, there should be a test to trace, you know, all of this stuff. And then the other, on the other hand, there, there's, there's all this uh, analysis of Trump as, you know, as a, as a, as a fascist, you know, and, and, it, and it seems like an actually authoritarian leader. Uh, like if, if that was the big problem with Trump, if the big problem with Trump wasn't just that he was doing what Romney would have done if he was president, you know, deregulating, appointing yeah, 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 judges yeah. who would overturn abortion, yeah. you know, but if the big problem with Trump is that he was this radical new authoritarian break, that's very confusing how he responded to the pandemic because you'd think this would be the golden opportunity for an authoritarian consolidation of power. I mean, this, this Yeah, but it's clear why he didn't do it. Because in Slovenia, the present right-wing government uh, is trying to do this. Although at the beginning they were following Trump and proclaiming that, that the threat of pandemic is a leftist exaggeration to impose socialist dictatorship. Now they turned around the disc, the music, and now they claim that, that uh, leftists uh, uh, are, anti uh, are against vaccination to prevent, to prevent the operative ability of the uh, government and so on. But don't you think the problem with Trump is this one, that a strong 
that his real, okay, he had many bases which he represented. There were, there were many big corporations and so on and so on. But, but maybe the key component of his support was this, were this middle class, even some lower class individuals who perceive the state as uh, interesting all that. And it's very difficult to get that American type of populism into a proper authoritarian fascist frame. You know, what Trump was doing would have been unacceptable for a true fascist, I think. Maybe I'm wrong, I'm not sure. Sounds right to me. So, uh, Professor Spriglia, do you have a question? And how are we doing on time, sir? Yes, you can call him professor because I hate him. <laughs> He's my best friend. But yes, call him professor, not me. Yes. Okay. <laughs> professor Spriglia, up yours. Oh, Jesus. No. Um, <laughs> no, well, you know, I was just thinking about uh, the discussion we were having earlier about the question of, of leadership. And, um, but and I was also thinking about that along the same lines of the um, the the Chinese students who were who were disappeared for reading for reading Marx yeah. and or reading Mao and taking it taking it too seriously. Um, there's there's a connection there, I, I think. But um, I don't buy any of the um, and it's also a sort of callback, Slava, to your earlier yeah. point about having to yeah. like admit this, like you know, gritting your teeth that some of the things that Biden has done um, aren't so bad. I think I think Biden him, him, himself, um, as far as leadership goes, um, is I wouldn't give him a very high grade. But the degree to which the um, and it's actually kind of tied into what 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 uh, Adnan was asking you about the degree to which this sort of the the erosion of the neoliberal consensus has pushed um, Biden to um, you know sp we've spent. Uh, I mean, not nearly enough, but to have spent, you know, over, what was it? What was the coronavirus package? 1.8 1. 1. trillion. And now, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the, um, with the reconciliation bill that now that, you know, Manchin is threatening to, to hold it up. Here I become a Stalinist. Sorry to interrupt you. Don't you think that one should liquidate the, in, aren't there four or five members of the Democratic Party in the Senate? And they are the danger. Well, I mean, and it's more, it's from, you know, it's apparently more than just mansion and cinema. They're just happy to, to take the, you know, to, to take the press and to take the hit for other people, like maybe Chris Coons. But, um, but to what degree is it, I'm not saying that it doesn't matter uh, that, that, you know, that it's, it's, it's Biden, but to what degree is it the fact that has the political imagination um, and, you know, regardless of what centrist Democrats want to do, um, their their hand is being forced. Um, and, I'm, and I'm saying, you know, the, the forces of reaction will always be there. But um, it's almost like the problem for somebody like like Biden is similar to the problem with the you know the the old authority. Like, oh, these these people are taking it too seriously. It's like we can't just use Black Lives Matter as a slogan. We actually have to, tr um, you know, we're going to be pushed to actually implement this. Or we can't just take uh, Medicare for all as this sort of popular slogan. Where things are moving in that in that direction, however slowly. So I guess it, this isn't so much a question as a reflection on 
to what degree has the the, the political terrain itself or world <laughs> this sort of broad again world historical events um the politi politicians we still haven't caught up with it yet i agree but here again Maybe I'm too much of a cynical realist, although I don't consider myself cynical in any serious sense. Namely, I still prefer this hypocritical strategy. You know, we must be for healthcare for all, although we always find an excuse. But hypocrisy at least opens up the way for criticism. You know, then, then you can say, no, we have to take it seriously and so on and so on. So uh, I am for hypocrisy insofar as it sustains a certain critical space. This was always Marx's position. Um, stupid leftists only quote that Marx, you know, bourgeois freedoms are just formal freedoms, you know. Yeah, but out of this forum, many very positive things happened. Yes, first they were just formal freedoms. But then Mary Wollstonecraft, women said, we also wanted. Then a world historical event, uh, uh, black slaves in Haiti said, we also wanted. Workers said, actual freedom, why not also social freedom, and so on and so on. You know, uh, uh, for me, the most beautiful example of this, it was told to me, maybe you know it, by a Mexican friend. You know that Virgin of Guadalupe, of course, the black virgin which appeared already around 1,600, not too many in Mexico, no? At the beginning, Christianity was just imposed by the colonizers. What happened with that appearance of a black virgin is that the very religion of colonizers was creatively reappropriated to express the deep discontent, horror of the lives of those enslaved and so on. So again, I am all for hypocrisy insofar as it is the first step towards more awareness. Like, this is how we should criticize bourgeois modernity. As some critical race guys did it, put it in a wonderful way, uh, you know, the big thing of modernity from 16th, 17th century was against slavery. Nobody should be slave. We should, but how strangely, exactly at that period, because capitalism necessitated this, actual slavery exploded in the 16th, 17th century. So, isn't the paradox that precisely when of the early Enlightenment thinkers the obsession was against slavery, the sense was, in a strict legal sense, metaphoric slavery, a worker is a slave, women are slaves, and so on. But they tolerated literal slavery. And here, maybe I should, I'm getting tired, tell you a story of how, that's my historical pessimism, how even the most progressive ideas can be used for bad purposes. You remember, for me, one of the original bad guys of American politics, Andrew Jackson and proto-Trump, populist for ordinary people, but kill the natives, you know, move west. But you know which idea there was something like left-wing genocide of Native Americans. And you know who was their reference? A very leftist thought of 
I think it was not David Hume, it was John Locke, who said, meaning of course the European capitalist constellation, but Locke already applied it to the United States. His reasoning was this one, very leftist one. There should be a limited amount of private property, but only if you can effectively work on it, productively use it, you know. But then Locke went on and he said, but look at the natives in America. They have this immense territory which they don't use productively. They just vegetate on it. So we need actual workers to use that, which is why screw them, the natives go and colonize it. It's a very dangerous, this is for me ideology at its best, which means most horrible. No, how this progressive idea, no, property should be limited and, uh, and linked to your productivity can be used in a directly brutal racist way to justify genocide. Well, you've been very generous with your time, and I, and I would love to have you come back uh, with this esteemed panel. Professor Adnan Hussein went on Twitter, asked his followers and my followers, our followers, what questions you would like to ask Zizak. And there was... Okay, give me the last one, yeah. There was one question from a M.W. Von Walter who asked you, how do we go about making new cliches? And the reason that is interesting to me is because Professor Hussein intimated that you like stereotypes. So Absolutely. what is the difference between or the, what is the difference between a cliche and a stereotype? And can comedy exist? Can jokes exist without cliches and stereotypes? They cannot, but my own country, ex-Yugoslavia, is for me a model of how, don't ask me, this is too theoretical now to give you an exact definition of the difference between stereotype and cliché, but I remember before nationalism, it's my old story, sorry if some of you know it, before nationalism exploded in mid-80s and then the war in early 90s, when we met with friends from other republics, we joyfully, mockingly repeated all the cliches and so on. And the point was to mobilize the racist cliches, but in such a beautiful, ironic way, you know, that it, it was the most efficient way, again, to undermine racism. Like, I don't know, but, uh, uh, Montenegro people were supposed to be lazy. Uh, Bosnian, Bosniaks were supposed to be too sexually obsessed. We Slovenes were supposed to be, how do you call it, miser, stingy, don't want to pay the bill. But Well, that one's true, though. That, that one's just true. No, absolutely. I think when I visit the country, the only cognitive mapping that you get is cliches. And I think all good things happen. When I noticed when I was with Scotland, you know, sorry, in Scotland, Scottish people are supposed to be misers. And they were always so generous to me paying the bill, but it was clear that it was a reaction to cliché. <laughs> they knew this is their cliché, you know. Even in Germany today, Germany is today 
much less racist then, although you have also, there is some tendency there, tendency there, much less racist than, uh, than, uh, than France or England, precisely because there is all the time in the background that, of course, Nazi horror. And, uh, and uh, just to tell another thing, who, who was it there? Uh, what, uh, who was it? Was who said, who, who said that about Hannah Arendt, uh, that the Nazism was against the true German tradition? Yes, and, I'm, and there is a wonderful detail which people forget, which sort of confirms it. You know, it was this popular association, uh, Prussian officers, discipline. No! Prussia, that region, they were too elitist officers. They didn't like Nazism. Nazism, the roots of Nazism were mostly in this southern decadent, enjoy the life Bavaria, you know. Right. No, I, I think we should rehabilitate almost against Nazism, the, the, the Prussian military spirit and so on. So, but back to, sorry, back to the, back to the cliches, you know, we need cliches as a, as a, some kind of basic orientation, a language without cliches is simply a lifeless language. I'm not saying, of course, that we should accept cliches, but it's a wonderful anti-racist experience to mockingly undermine cliches, but the cliches have to be there to do it. That's my problem with political correctness. I think that in some sense, the way they fight racist and other cliches, in some sense, by, by prohibiting them in right way, it in the long term it only it only reconfirms racist prejudices and so on and so on. Do you see my my last question, uh, Michael Brooks, who it's a sacred name on this show and among our group. He was a big fan of a show called Come Town, which was severely profane. They didn't traffic their spe their speech, and it was a relief to him and me and I and my friends yeah, yeah. to be able to hear jokes, unbridled, whatever politically incorrect. Absolutely agree. Uh, sorry, I don't know that one, but you know whom I, up to a certain level, but nonetheless admire, Larry David. You know he just barely escaped being prohibited for his. Uh, post Seinfeld show, where there was, I think this brought him so much trouble, where there was, uh, uh, it was so intelligent, but people took it as mocking the Holocaust. Did you see one episode where- Yeah, no, guys, it was on Saturday Night Live. You're talking about when he was, he was hosting Saturday Night Live or- Was it this one where he had two people, one actual Holocaust survivor oh, and one win winner of the Survivor show TV, right. and they they struggle who suffered more, and of course the survivor of the uh, right. <laughs> of the reality show wins. I don't think this, in any sense, really downplays the horror of the Holocaust. The whole joke works precisely because we know that the situation is totally absurd. That of course. Holocaust cannot be, and I was so delighted from my Israeli friends to learn. You know that Jews had a whole series of Holocaust jokes, which were, as they told me, 
the only way for them to survive when things were really horrible immediately after World War II, or even, for example, in Poland itself, you couldn't afford this historical awareness. Oh my God, you can only tolerate it through jokes. It's the same in Bosnia with the Srebrenica massacre. There is a whole subspecies of, of, of jokes. Although I admit it, there are jokes and jokes. I don't believe generally in abstract redeeming power of laughter. We should never forget that there is also a specific arrogant humor of, for example, in socialist countries, upper level bureaucrats making fun of the lower class, stupid, naive people. Even in China, from my friends, I learned that there is a couple of there is a whole series of jokes making fun of stupid provincial lower level party secretaries in a small town or a factory but these are strictly upper level higher state bureaucracy jokes about them so i don't believe that in general jokes are necessarily subversive no there are jokes and jokes there are also extremely brutal, arrogant, racist jokes, and so on and so on. I admit it. Well, I agree with you. I won't say it's an honor to have you on the show. I won't say this. Don't I won't, say this. I won't say it. Actually, it's been an inconvenience. And a <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And you know what you should say? I would love you to say this. That next time, if we meet on the street, yes. you will look. And if you see me on one side of the street, you will pray to God that you will see me early enough to quickly cross the street and go to the <laughs> other side of you. <laughs> to me, it often happens this, and then, of course, I'm a pure hypocrite. And I say, <laughs> how nice to meet you and all that bullshit. Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, some, so, people, some people say Zizek is the Elvis of cultural theory. That's what I, some but no, you know what's my paradox? And Russell, although I hate him again, uh, but yes. he got this debt, and I'm glad that we moved in the same direction that people claim I'm a post No, I'm not a crazy postmodernist. I want to return to classical big philosophy. I'm very orthodox here. I'm tired of this endless postmodern games and so on, you know. I like more and more clear, great philosophical theses political thesis, and so on and so on. So, no, now I will say something for which you can kill me. For a long time, I haven't had such a nice conversation than the one with you. And David, I like you especially because when I first saw you, I hope here we are not normal people like Ben and Russell. You look to me as a serious guy. My God, you will discipline us or whatever. Now I suspect you are the dirtiest of all of us. And that's why I get it. Yeah. Thanks very much. It was nice. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let me plug your book. That's the least I can do. So you can, uh, because uh, you have two, you've written 50 books. The most recent is uh, Pandemic, COVID-19, Shake. That's the second one. Now, these days, it will be out, but only for print on demand. I'm very mad at that. The third volume, the title is uh, Heaven in Disorder, part three of my political writings. But 
life goes on. Okay. I have one pleasure for me. This is a question I ask of everyone. What is your reading hygiene? What what is your reading discipline each day, please? I need two texts. One easier one, the detective, and one difficult one, so that when I get tired with the one, I jump to the other, I jump here and there. How many hours do you spend reading? Not enough, because I had some eye inflammation problems and so on. But still, I have this scout, boy scout logic, you know. Every day I have to read something, I have to write a little bit. If I don't do it, I feel guilty. And how many hours are we talking about? I, because of small obligations here here and there, I have to, to make breaks all the time. But like, if I'm active less than five hours, I... If in Stalinist Russia, I would have volunteered for Gulag. You, know? like, so you, you don't read for five hours a day? You no, read and write. Read and write for five yeah, days. But not in one, not, in, in, not at once, like one hour here, one hour there. I, I'm very flexible here. I can work on airplanes, in trains, and so on and so on. As a matter of fact, I remember years ago, now it's horrible because on many planes, if you fly business class and because of my age, I have to, you have to, uh, you get free internet. But really, I hate it because what I like about these really long flights, not United, but from Europe here to Latin America to Australia, isn't there something wonderful? You are like 15, 20 hours out of contact with reality. Right. And what is your baseline? What do you have to read each day? Is there a newspaper? Is there a website that you go to that you have to go to every day? Just quickly follow news on CNN, Guardian, and some other sites. No, no. It must be a little bit of serious theory, philosophy, political theory, and so on. I am absolutely specific. You don't trust the New York Times to tell you. I, I, I don't even follow New York Times. I'm somewhere between, but not because I like them, but because they are most practical for quick news uh, just to get what is going on. And here we are more used to CNN and Guardian in Europe. But I'm right. saying absolutely not. They are, they are, uh, they are the best. But is there my point value is- to a, an organization that is gathering news and then telling you each day, this is important. We have, we, we, we have the brightest people in our newsroom and we no, believe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not aware of it. I, you don't, I don't think that there's any value to like a BB. No, 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 probably it is. I'm not saying there is not, you know, I'm just saying that I am not aware. If you have a suggestion that there is a, 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 a domain or whatever, website where you click that and you learn all that is really important. I would like to, to know it. No. The comment section on Pornhub for me always gets me through the... Uh, Pornhub, like, but how can you skip the other part of... Uh, <laughs> I mean... Uh, yeah, uh, what is this? Ah, now you are dirty old man. <laughs> if they, no, what I mean is that if they catch you, looking at naked women or whatever is there, you say, no, this was by mistake. I'm really just for the news there. They have the best comment section. 
Look <laughs> comment when section, I was you can't young, beat it. I must say many people, but sincerely, they were not lying, were telling me that in Playboy 30 years ago and more, they had quite good long interviews and so on. You know, yes. it, it wasn't yes. all bullshit. In there's, a, there's, a, there's an interview with, with Thomas Pynchon from, from like a Playboy from the early 70s yeah. that I read yeah. for the articles. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, her review yeah. section in Hustler was magnificent. I'm kidding. Okay, thank you okay. so much. Thank I'm you stop. so much. And I really appropriate. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And keep in touch, even with you, Russell, my, and Ben, my two greatest enemies. We still keep in touch. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I, 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 uh, I, I appreciate that because I am your enemy. Uh, and you want to spite me by by intruding by yourself into uh, into my life. You should respond to the email from the other day. I will, I will, I will. I wanted to tell you this. You will get a reply. I will suggest a date, you know. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. It must have been an honor for you to talk to me. Thank you. 